This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. We've all been down the path of integration, normalization, and operationalizing our security data. The common theme is a traditional SIM can't keep up, which is why we say run Panther. Panther normalizes your security data and integrates into your security operations pipeline to provide complete visibility across your environment. Panther is a cloud-native security analytics platform built for engineers by engineers. Learn more by visiting runpanther.io. Thank you, Panther, for sponsoring this episode. What's going on, everyone? And welcome back to the Hacker Valley Studio podcast. Recently at the Technology Workforce Collaborative Summit, we met Olivia Hereford and we knew we had to have her on the podcast. In this episode, we get to learn about Olivia's great and exceptional work in equity in technology We learn about her background in computer science and get a master class in the evolution of technology over time. I think everyone can learn a lot from this episode and enjoy it. Let's jump right into it. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again with a guest that has a lot of insight on a topic that I feel like is overlooked too frequently, and that's workforce development. To bring some light to this conversation, we've brought in Olivia Hereford. She is Regional Director and Employer Engagement at Bay Area Community College Consortium, and we recently met at the Tech Workforce Collaborative Summit. Olivia, it's great to speak to you again, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Olivia, it was so incredible to hear some of your insights and your presentation when we had the panel just a month ago. Uh, But for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, would love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. My background is in tech, and it has landed me in my position today with the Bay Area Community College Consortium. We are a a group that supports the uh, 28 community colleges in the San Francisco Bay Area region. And my focus is in the area of ICT, Information and Communications Technology, Career Education. Uh, The BACCC, that's our entire focus, and that is supporting uh, all of the career educations, not those related to tech, but also in other industries as well, healthcare, advanced manufacturing, et cetera. But my focus is in ICT. That comes from a long career in tech. I tell folk that I have what I call an ancient computer science degree. I earned a computer (laughs) science degree in 1973. Wow. Uh, Yes. And in, in those days, it was called applied math with a computer science option. I had interned during, uh, with IBM during, during my uh, years in uh, college and then ended up in tech, primarily on the hardware engineering side, supporting computer-aided design tools. And that, I guess you can imagine what that was like for me in the mid-70s as a Black woman <laughs> working with uh, hardware and software engineers it, it, in, in primarily uh, in the area of doing uh, um, hardware design. 
And needless to say, it was a rather uh, hostile uh, in- environment for me. And I immediately shift away from um, the engineering uh, aspects of uh, technology and went more into um, you know software and application um, support. And I uh, have a long career in, in leading and, and managing uh, customer-facing organizations in hardware and software companies. I did that for a long time and then went out on my own, primarily doing IT project management, strategic planning for quite a while. And then I uh, decided uh, because of my love for people and my gravitation toward managerial roles, I went back and got my MBA and then my doctorate in organizational leadership. Was still but pretty much focused on, you know, how do we create more welcoming and inclusive work environments, particularly in the tech industry. So I was involved in early efforts around diversity and, you know, particularly wanting to uh, see more people that look like me in the industry and eventually gravitated toward a career education in the community college system where I got the opportunity to actually make the case to employers in the industry that if you really wanted diversity, you had to go where diversity is. And I found that the community colleges were where we had the most of our diverse populations, also working with community-based organizations who partnered with community colleges in developing uh, tech skills for people to get into entry-level positions. And so I've, I've been doing that now for about 12 years. I love it. It's very gratifying. But we still got a lot of work to do, a lot of work to do. So that's how I got involved with organizations like that came together for the, the Tech Workforce Summit. Yeah, we have a lot of work to do. And I know that you said you were early in the diversity and inclusion conversation. I feel like that conversation, those efforts are still in their infancy for where they could be. And it makes me curious. You know, you had a great start in computer science back in the 70s, which is absolutely amazing. I would love to hear a bit about how that began. I'm sure it was a lot different. We're talking about seeing more people like us today, but I'm sure even back then, like you really didn't have any examples. No, I didn't. And I tell you, the the, the only reason that I ended up where I'm at now is that my best friend, her brother, was a student at Northrop University. He was studying aerospace engineering. And I said, cool, I think I want to do that. You know, I could become an astronaut someday. (laughs) So I ended up at Northrop University pursuing a degree in aerospace engineering. Got scared away from that because our early 70s were when the aerospace industry took a hit and they were doing layoffs. And I happened to be working, as I mentioned, as an intern uh, at IBM at McDonnell Douglas, uh, supporting some of their production production control systems. And I say, you know what, I think I want to switch up. I want to, you know, start to work more uh, general applications of the IBM's technology. So that's why I switched over. I, the only option I had at Northrop was the applied math with the computer science option. So that's how I ended up making the move from aerospace to applied math. When I graduated, IBM, this also tells you how long ago this was, uh, IBM was being broken up by the Department of Justice. 
because uh, they felt that they were violating antitrust laws because they were packaging software and service with the sale of hardware. So being in the midst of all that change, the only jobs that they could offer me at the time, because of my hardware engineering background, they wanted me to become what was called the customer engineers. You know, customer engineers, that title was the people that actually did the hardware maintenance and they tended to work graveyard shifts, obviously, because you can't work on, you know, systems, you know, during normal business hours. And I said, "Mm, I don't think I want to do that. So I, uh, that's why I did not end up working for IBM. I took a job with a company called National CSS, which was back in the days of what we call timeshare. When I explain time, what timesharing is to people, I say, well, you know, think of that as the initial version of cloud, because that basically people were using our systems to do their information management. And so that's what I did. Uh, again, that was in customer facing, and I worked for them for about 10 years. And then I uh, moved on to a company called Tandem Computers, worked for them for about 10 years. And then moved to an organization called Illustra, which was eventually uh, purchased by Informix, and Informix was purchased by IBM. And with all of that movement, I'm saying, okay, I'm done. I'm just moving around and restructuring. I'm just going to go out on my own. And I think that was one of the best things that I I did because I was able to follow my own pursuits. As I mentioned earlier, I got interested in leadership but you know there was there was some harrowing and tough experiences during those times you know again being a black woman in tech often overlooked and then you know difficulties as far as perceptions of credibility and my skills i mean to this day i think it has had an effect on me relative to i still suffer from imposter syndrome and then i think that's one of the things that when i'm working with uh students and completers who are moving into the industry is that helping them and understanding you're going to encounter that. And I think one of the best things that we can do for reaching out to younger people entering tech is to instill some confidence. Don't be swayed by comparing yourself to others. We all bring something unique. We really need to start to get people to to really understand the, the power and capability that they all have that is uniquely theirs. It's such a travesty because like when you were talking about your your origin story, getting into tech so early, it made me think of hidden figures, you know, and I didn't even know that story until they made a movie about it. But stories like yours is something that I think people need to hear. You were talking a little bit about how it was very harsh on on the engineering side back in the day. Could you tell us a little bit about what ended up pushing you away from that engineering side and over into the the soft skills and the people side? And would you have made a, a different choice knowing what you know now? I would, but you know, just to tell you just an example of some of the things that I encountered, there was an episode in one of my classes and the uh, professor was very profane. And there was one other, you know, there was a brother in the class and he just finally had basically he was just fed up. He just wasn't going to allow that to happen to me. And he stood up and, and say, Hey, wait a minute. You know, there is a lady in the room. You can't talk like that. And professor said, Oh, Olivia. Hey, Olivia's an engineers. Engineers aren't ladies. Mm. And both of us walked out of the room. Uh, We filed a complaint. We got an apology, but that was the kind of treatment that I often got. 
uh, I was always at the engineering school that I went to at Pinchot Northrop. It's about always only about 2,500 students, and there were never more than 10 women. And I was always the only woman of color. I really feel that a lot of times I was uh, graded and assessed unfairly. It was very difficult for me to get help. The interesting thing was the only faculty that really seemed to appreciate my skills and abilities were the non-tech faculty. In other words, the the faculty that were teaching more of the uh, liberal arts part of our curriculum. I guess I couldn't tell you why, but I found that very interesting. And I'm saying, hmm, if this is what it's going to be like, boy, I'm in for a, a tough ride. And then when I started in my first job, I mean, racist and, and misogynist comments and conversations, people that would call me gal, you know, and it was just too much. And I, I, and I associated that and I had more of those experiences with people with technical backgrounds versus business backgrounds. The only reason that I think that that happened was just the lack of exposure. I mean, from where they come to, where a lot of people that worked in tech at the time, their backgrounds, they didn't run into women. They didn't run into people of color. As opposed to in the business environment, you know, they have more exposure. So, you know, I hate to say that, you know, I just, I did a retreat. A lot of people are stronger and they, they stick with it, but it was just too stressful for me. So I just left the hardcore engineering environment behind. Uh, when I was making the decision about college, one of the things that influenced me was my father. I grew up in a single parent household. I was the oldest. My father raised us because we lost my mother when I was very young. My father had an eighth grade education. He was a janitor all his life. And one of the things he had stressed education, education. I don't want you to be like me. I want you to be able to, to, to get a good job. Well, all of my, through uh, elementary school, all the way up to the time that I was in high school, I was a violinist. I was a very good one. Uh, I was first chair in all of the organ, all of the orchestras that I was in. And I, I had to make a choice, you know, do I follow music? Do I follow that career? Or do I, you know, do like my best friend and go get, do something like in engineering? And my father, his comment was, well, you know, I know you love music, but I think you're going to get a better job if you pursue the engineering path. And I, I think about that to this day, that choice, because I do consider myself uh, artistic, creative. I love music. I love to write. I love the arts, still do. And I think that and if I could have a crystal ball and have seen what a struggle it was going to be those first five to 10 years, I would have thought, well, music might have been a lot, <laughs> a lot friendlier. But, you know, you hear about the same things going on in, in music, you know, how they, they have to do blind auditions now. You know, mm-hmm. they still do. And so, you know, I put that regret aside because I think that this is an issue, not just in tech. We know that we have a systemic racism that we have lived with for centuries. And it isn't going to change until we actually, I like to uh, think about what James Baldwin says, we're not going to change it until we face it. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the work when I was uh, in that transition, when I was working for myself, one of the things I began to focus on was you know, how do we change, as I mentioned before, how do we change the environment? And the problem is that we have a lot of embedded biases. We all do. 
have a lot of embedded biases from, but that come from growing up and living in this society. So I've, I've done a lot of work around workshops and training on managing unconscious bias, how faculty and managers in the workplace, faculty in the classroom and managers in the workplace can create or understand how they are creating either a welcoming or a hostile environment. And that to this day is one of my areas that I that I am very fortunate to be allowed to incorporate that in my work. So not only in helping students get connected and engaged in, in work-based learning, but also working with faculty and administrators on what they can do to make change, as well as employers. I also work with employers and partners such as those that were participating in the uh, summit we did together. Astronaut Olivia would have been cool. Engineer Olivia would have been pretty great. But I'm so thankful for the work that you're doing in education and talking about these bias, unconscious bias and the like. What progress would you say we've made over the last, you know, couple decades? Have you seen much of a change? And then where do you think we're headed into the future? Well, you know what? I see the change in awareness, but have not seen much change in the outcome yet. And that's not to disparage that we, you know, the work we, we do need to continue. But awareness is the beginning. And by that, you know, we like we're saying, we're we're hearing a lot about what big companies are making commitments. I was just introduced to an organization called 110. It sounds like an incredible consortium of large tech companies that have made a commitment that they are going to hire a million African-American workers within 10 years. I heard those pledges 10 years ago. Right. And we don't see a big change yet. But 10 years ago, we didn't have such big organizations coming to the table and talking about it. And I think we're seeing a lot of action being taken, but I think they're also discovering these these types of organizations like 110 that is not so easy when you have to change a culture. I did my doctoral research on the relationship between um, tech culture and emotional intelligence, because one of the things that I, I found that those people... Uh, in my observation during my years in tech, that those people that were higher in emotional intelligence on two sides, whether they were the employee or the manager, either or, if they had a higher level of emotional intelligence, they tended to be less biased, more open. They used that emotional intelligence to help and support others. They were empathetic. They were socially aware as far as, you know, the inner workings of uh, an organization and how to get people to work together. They were, in other words, they were leaders. They were leaders. And one of the things that, that I don't know whether it was good or bad of the outcomes of my study, but we don't have enough leaders. We don't have enough true leaders. And I'm, this is across the board. I'm talking about in education and, and, and in uh, business, in tech, all the way up to the, the people running our country. Being an expert on leadership, I don't see enough. 
I agree. I think we need more leaders across the board. And I think that there's a lot of people out there, and I think this even applies to Chris and myself, that are leaders without knowing it. They have such an impact that they can make already in their lives and in their careers. And they already have that desire, that fire in them that makes them want to lead, but just haven't taken that that first step yet. And I really encourage anyone to take that first step. You never know what's going to happen with that outcome. And at the end of the day, you'll just have a learning lesson no matter the case. Exactly. Exactly. I wanted to ask you, now that you have your seat at the table, you're driving change in diversity and inclusion and racial equity. What are some things that you're hoping to strive for and push for and make an impact in now that you're in this situation? One of the things that I am doing is, first of all, a year after uh, George Floyd, we're sadly, I, I, I think we, we're becoming complacent again. And uh, so one of the things that I'm doing is that keeping that conversation alive. I lead a group called the Facing Systemic Racism Community of Practice. And the intent is to keep that conversation alive. One of the things about diversity initiatives and in the 20 years that it's been in the conversation, this has always has looked at us as being the thing to be fixed. How do we help you assimilate? How do we help you be successful? And I'm saying, wait a minute, what are you going to do to change an environment and make things less difficult? Get rid of some of these barriers, get rid of some of these institutional ways of things being done that whatever you you try to do to help underrepresented groups of people are never going to have any outcome because the environment in which we're trying to get it done hasn't changed. So, you know, like, for, for instance, you know, just changing our language. You know, one of the things in public education, you know, for years we've been hearing it called the achievement gap. Well, wait a minute. Mm. Whose achievement? <laughs> okay. So the train, the, the, now we're, we're using a different t- terminology. We're calling it an opportunity gap because it's not so much that I'm unable to achieve. I don't get the opportunity to achieve. And that's just an example. I think conversation to start at least examining what we all need to do to affect and actually see some change. What are some of the best ways you found to cultivate that space for conversation? I feel like sometimes emotions run high. I was definitely emotional over the last year or so with everything that was going on, but I feel like sometimes emotions get in the way of productive conversations sometimes. What would you say are some of the best tenets or or philosophies that you live by to cultivate that nice environment for that conversation? I'm a big fan of Brene Brown and her work on vulnerability and shame. And so when I am facilitating these conversations, one of the first things that I will will talk about, particularly if it's a new group, by the way, this comes from Dr. Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And I tell them, I'm a racist too. And that shocks a lot of people. I said, anybody growing up and in, 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 in being, you know, coming of age in the United States has racist bias. And I tell them about growing up in Compton, most families wanting to shop outside of the neighborhood 
or go to doctors outside of our neighborhood because we felt that in our community, everything that we had was less than what it, we could find outside in a non-Black community, right? I tell them a story about how the first time I got on an airplane heading to an all-Black country and the fear I had of getting into an airplane with a Black crew. And, you know, the eyes get big and they say, and I say, yeah, I say, yeah, that's, that's a truth. That's a bias that I've had to, to work on for most of my life. The assumption that, you know, anything that was any service or a professional sales establishment in a black community wasn't going to be as desirable as something outside of the community. So when you help people understand that it's human this is uh, something we are all subjected to, then they become a little bit more open to take a deeper look into their own experience, to their own biases and beliefs, and how we are all a part of this change that has to happen. But the thing is, is that we, people of color, basically, have been the, the victims of this, and we're not the ones in the control of the solution that is being put up on us as the group that has to change. The conversation always be, you know, particularly with the new group, as I said, I, I start the conversation with helping folk understand that this is human and that they are not alone in looking at the troubling feelings that they have about the situation. What I'm hearing is two really strong tenets of, you know, making an impact and change in this area is one, starting that conversation with an open mind and open space for vulnerability and dissolving shame. Everything happens. You know, we make mistakes as humans and we have to confront those mistakes. And the second tenet is continuing that conversation, not yes. stopping after a specific point, continuing the change and the impact that has already been put in place. One of the topics that we spoke about um, previously and that we said we we're going to talk about on the podcast was equity in technology. What exactly does that mean? I was writing a, a blog post a couple of months ago and what I led it with is that, you know, we're surrounded by diversity. We've always, there's diversity is, is there for the taking, it's available. The issue is inclusion. Like I was mentioning in the early part of my career, I, I felt like, you know, I was there, but I wasn't included. I wasn't given the opportunity that even another white woman, let alone a, a white man, would get. And this is my feeling perspective, it you know, may not have been the case. But it was just assumed that I didn't have the abilities, the skills to take on um, a, a, a larger role and, and responsibility. And I think that's what happens even in getting a job. And I think that employers will go out and they'll do outreach and they'll go to the, you know, the HBCUs and they'll, they'll go to the community college and they'll do recruiting. And then they'll bring, they'll, they'll hire, they'll hire even people that they say, hey, we're going to give you a chance. You don't maybe not have all of the requirements that have, but we're going to train you maybe as an apprentice or something like that. But they get in and they don't get the same type of mentorship and support and understanding, for example, that, you know, some of these young people coming into these tech, new tech roles 
have difficulty sometimes just uh, getting from where they live to you know where they have to show up to work because of the responsibilities, the commute. Maybe they don't have support that they need, and they're not getting it from their employers. As opposed to other folks, you know, neither they're privileged or don't have that issue, or they'll get the help a lot easier from their work colleagues than young employees of color may not get. In other words, they're not a member of the club. And that is, I think, is one of the the barriers to equity is inclusion, that, you know, we're just not giving the the support and chance and opportunities that those that traditionally have, have had it. This is the part of the podcast where we usually ask for a piece of wisdom for cybersecurity professionals, but I feel like the work that you're doing, the knowledge that you have, doesn't just apply to cybersecurity. It doesn't just apply to technology, but it applies to everyone in the world. So for that person that's listening right now that wants to be more empathetic, that wants to be more aware, respectful, and inclusive, what piece of advice would you have for that person to make this world a little bit better? Well, you know, one of the things I love, I'm really, really enjoying about working in the cybersecurity space is when I look at the people who have been successful, all the way to those that have just broken in, all the way to the top folks that are are CISOs, the backgrounds are so diverse. I mean, I would say, you know, uh, only maybe of the the CISOs that I have met, maybe only two or three of them actually started out with the intent of being in cybersecurity. The backgrounds are so diverse. However, the personalities, the passions, the interests, you know, uh, the char- their characteristics, which are primarily human as opposed to technical, are what have made them successful. And so when I'm working with the, our, my, our, our community college students, the ones that are aspiring to to break into this space. What I have really encouraged them about is showing up as who you are. And first of all, to do that, you have to know who you are. Why is it that problems intrigue you? Why is it that you can't let a mystery go unsolved? Understand that as a strength. Understand that as um, something that you've taken away from your own growth. And also understand that, you know, you know, a, a, a um, failure is just an, a, another way of, of uh, in other words, you have, to, you have to fail sooner to succeed faster. So don't be afraid of it, you know. And so those are the types of things that I, I notice in the people all the way up to the top that have been successful, you know, uh, have, has made a difference. So that, you know, that is, that's why when you say what I'm talking about is human, well, it's the same for cybersecurity. If you want a career in cybersecurity, uh, I'm talking about the leadership. See, my focus on, is on leadership, right? And as you were saying earlier, there are people that are just what we call referential leaders, people that others just want to follow, whether they have a title or not. Well, there are people in this field that are the same way. And if you look at them, they're the ones that have been the most successful. So 
that would be my tidbit of wisdom. And that's what I try to share with students. And I think it would be the same for employers, people working in an environment who want to make a change. Learn to recognize that in the people sitting on the other side of the desk. You don't look at certifications and, you know, how, you know, how much school they've completed. You know, look at that person on the other side and, and get to know or, or try to find out or, you know, question who they are and what got them to that seat. Olivia, this has been absolutely incredible. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. I feel like you're definitely Hacker Valley family at this point. For the (laughs) folks that want to stay up to date with you and all the incredible things that you're doing, what are the best ways that people can do that? Oh, well, definitely connect with me via LinkedIn. That talking to students, I love them to connect with me to stay in touch. Uh, so that would be the, the quickest way. And then we could take the connections further after that. Great. We will be sure to drop your LinkedIn in the show notes. And also thank you for uploading the Technology Workforce Collaborative Summit to your YouTube page. We'll also drop that in the show notes and we'll see everyone next time. If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over coffee. Thank you.